Hello, powerful people. Welcome back to the Power at Work blog. And this blogcast, my name is Seth Harris. I'm a senior fellow at the Burns Center for Social Change. Really good to see you again. Happy New Year. If it's not too late in January for me to say that, since I haven't seen you recently, let me say Happy New Year, happy and healthy to you. Um, in this podcast, I speak with a few of my fellow labor podcasters about the reason that they became labor podcasters. Uh, I talk to them a little bit about their audiences, and then we get into some big labor issues, big conceptual labor issues, and we talk those through. Today, you're going to hear from Judy Ansel, who's the host and producer of the Heartland Labor Forum, Max Alvarez, who's the editor-in-chief of the Real News Network and host of the Working People podcast, and Mel Buer, who's a staff reporter and host for the weekly Real News Network podcast. We'll talk about how they get involved in labor podcasting, uh, and you get to hear what they think about some of the big, big labor issues today. This podcast has been made possible by the generous support of Union Built PC. Union Built PC has been serving, serving, not serving, serving labor's IT hardware and software needs for over 22 years. Their slogan is, we organize labor, and they do. Now, we work closely with Union Built PC on a number of things, and uh, Pete Barchese, their CEO, is a great guy. And so to learn more about them, go to www.unionbuiltpc.com. That's www.unionbuiltpc.com. All right, now it's time for some labor news. Just a few items that I wanted to discuss with you today. Today is Monday. Uh, not Monday. It's not Monday. It's Tuesday. The reason I got confused is because yesterday was the celebration of uh, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Um, and today's our first day of work. So it's Tuesday, January 16th. Um, and so, uh, you know, if you're watching this fairly soon after we publish it, this is all going to be current to you, I hope. So uh, here's some labor news. Um, the U.S. Department of Labor issued its final regulation uh, defining the difference between independent contractors and employees under the Fair Labor Standards Act and uh, one or two other laws that use the definition of employee from the Fair Labor Standards Act, the Family and Medical Leave Act being the most prominent of those. Uh, but I've been seeing some headlines in some newsletters and newspapers and uh, some law firm uh, uh, publications that uh, this is going to mean that millions of gig workers are going to be treated as employees under the law. That's probably not quite true. Let me just tell you a little bit more about what this rule does and doesn't do. First of all, it is an interpretive rule. It doesn't have the force of law. It just expresses the Labor Department's view of how the statute should be interpreted. The courts have the final say on how the law should be interpreted. As a consequence of that, this doesn't really change the law. What it changes is the Labor Department's approach to enforcement and the Labor Department's positions when it enters into litigation on these issues. Now they will be able to take what had been the traditional view of the definition of employee under the Fair Labor Standards Act, the difference between employees and independent contractors under the minimum wage and overtime and child labor law. Um, what the Trump administration had significantly narrowed the definition, what 
the Biden Labor Department has done is they've gone back to the original understanding, the longstanding understanding. It is much, much more expansive. Uh, a lot of courts have said that the definition of employee under the Fair Labor Standards Act is the broadest in the law. But even though it is the broadest in the law, there were questions about how a lot of workers should be treated under that law. This interpretation by the Labor Department is absolutely going to help construction workers and home health workers and lots and lots of other workers outside the gig economy. And that's a terrific thing. And so we should praise uh, Acting Secretary Sue and her staff, Seema Nanda, the Solicitor of Labor, who played a leadership role on this. They should get a lot of credit, but let's not blow it out of proportion. This does not mean that Uber and Lyft drivers are all of a sudden going to be treated as employees. It doesn't mean that all of those issues are going to go away, that this is all encompassing. Only Congress can change the rules to make that happen, and they should. They should take, take this issue on directly, in my uh, humble opinion. Sticking with the law, actually all three of our items are law items today. Uh, Starbucks has succeeded in getting the United States Supreme Court to hear its challenge to a decision by the National Labor Relations Board associated with uh, the board's order direction that Starbucks rehire the Memphis Seven, seven employees of Starbucks who were fired uh, illegally. Um, uh, but let me say this, this, again, this case is not about will there be an NLRB. This, this is not an all-out attack on labor law in the country. It, it's, you know, it's Starbucks litigation strategy, which is to delay everything and to avoid bargaining with their union. And so they figured out a way to get to the Supreme Court. The key issue in the case, the central issue in the case, is what standard should be applied when the National Labor Relations Board seeks an injunction under Section 10J of the National Labor Relations Act. That's an injunction that allows the board to go to a court and say, you have to give, you should give immediate relief to, in this case, those seven workers, the Memphis Seven, um, because the violation requires it. Right. And there are two different standards. The U.S. courts of appeals that have considered this issue have split on the issue. There are two different standards coming out of the U.S. courts of appeals. I'm not going to go into the details here, um, and, but that's what the issue is going to be. The Supreme Court is going to choose, probably is going to choose one of those two definitions that the U.S. courts of appeal have have offered. Um the position of the National Labor Relations Board, or at least some people at the National Labor Relations Board, is there's not really much of a difference between the two standards, or if there's any difference at all, they functionally operate in the same way. So the best way to see this is it's just Starbucks doing Starbucks things, which is trying to drag out litigation so they will not have to bargain with uh, Starbucks Workers United. Now, they still have to bargain. They still have to bargain, but they're trying to drag things out and impose as many costs as possible on the NLRB and the union. All right. Item number three, um, I guess Elon Musk got a little jealous of his fellow billionaire Howard Schultz. He said, wait a minute, Howard, you can't be the world's biggest union law, uh, labor law breaker. I want in. And so the, the SpaceX has filed a lawsuit against the National Labor Relations Board challenging its constitutionality. I'm not kidding. Challenging the constitutionality of the National Labor Relations Board. Now, 
SpaceX illegally fired eight workers because they had signed on to a letter criticizing Elon Musk for some sexist comments that he had made. Uh, and so much for Elon Musk, this free speech purist. It's free speech unless you direct a criticism at him, and then it's a crime against humanity, I guess. Uh, so the argument here, and let me just say again, this case will not destroy the NLRB if SpaceX were to win. Also, let me say it's not at the Supreme Court. It's in the lower courts right now. But SpaceX's argument is that the NLRB is unconstitutional because the members of the National Labor Relations Board and the administrative law judges who hear the cases in the first instance before uh, they are brought to the board, they can be removed only for just cause, right? And all of you trade unionists out there know what just cause is. Those public officials can only be removed by the president for cause. Now, some of you may remember that President Biden fired the NLRB's general counsel appointed by President Trump, a guy by the name of Peter Robb, uh, and Robb sued and said, well, no, 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 you can't fire me. And uh, the government's position then, and the U.S. Court of Appeals agreed with this, is, well, no, 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 the statute doesn't protect the general counsel. It only protects board members and, and the ALJ. So the position that SpaceX is taking is the statute violates the Constitution by giving employment protections to the ALJs and to the members of the board. Now, they are advancing what is known in legal circles as the, unif the theory of the unified executive or unified executive theory. And the view, the weak view of unified executive theory or the weak form of unified executive theory is that Congress cannot limit the president's power either to appoint or remove officials that are in an executive position, that are in an executive status. Even though the NLRB is not sort of formally a part of the executive branch, they are performing what, what SpaceX would argue are executive functions, and therefore the president should be able to appoint and fire those officials at will. So again, even if SpaceX wins, it doesn't destroy the NLRB. It weakens the independence of the NLRB. It dramatically weakens the independence of the NLRB. And it means that the White House will have a lot more control over the decision-making of the board members and the ALJs. There's a lot of tension. There have been a lot of cases around this. The Supreme Court has heard several cases around this unified executive theory uh, argument. Um, it's unclear that they're going to be willing to go quite this far because the implications are are fairly complicated. And, you know, right now they there's a president in office that I'm speculating, not all of them voted for. Um, but that's what the argument would be. That It won't destroy the NLRB. It'll weaken the NLRB by making it less independent. Um, but the NLRB can come right back and charge uh, SpaceX with the, the illegal firings that they uh, engaged in. Okay. So that's labor news for this blogcast. The Power at Work blog is a proud member of the Labor Radio Podcast Network, which connects over 100 labor radio shows and podcasts. To learn more about the network or find other labor radio shows and podcasts, visit www.laborradionetwork.org. You can listen to or download all the Power at Work blogcasts on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts. Just search Power at Work on any commercial podcast platform and enjoy all our content. While you're there, please give us a five-star rating. 
It helps others find our podcasts and shows your support for our pro worker power content. Power at Work podcasts are available right now. Listen and download today. So we have three terrific guests today. I mentioned them to you. Judy Ansel is a host and producer, executive producer of the Heartland Labor Forum, Kansas City's only radio program about the workplace. Her show has been on air on 90.1 FM KKFI Kansas City since 1989, y'all. 1989, 35 years. Very impressive. So we're very excited to welcome Judy onto the blog and to hear more about her impressive tenure at KKFI. Max Alvarez is the editor-in-chief of the Real News Network and the host of Working People, a podcast created in partnership with In These Times magazine. Working People is all about sharing worker power stories, and we love that here at the blog. Glad to have Max on. And Mel Buer is a staff reporter at the Real News Network and a host of the weekly Real News Network podcast. It covers a range of topics related to worker power, labor organizing, other kinds of organizing, and other kinds of news. So it was great to have Mel on. So here's our discussion. Enjoy. Well, let me start by saying thanks to all of you for being here today. I'm, I'm really grateful to you uh, for participating. I, I'm, I'm fans. Uh, I'm a fan of all of yours. Um, and I, I, I want to talk first about labor podcasting, sort of how you got into it and why you got into it. And I got to, Max, I'm going to start with you. And I got to say this first. So my, my brother has been a radio guy since the late 1970s. He retired just a couple of years ago. So I've been in and around radio and podcasting for a really long time, even if it's just by, by blood, I've been connected to it. Max, you have the most radio voice of anybody in labor <laughs> podcasting. You've got that deep baritone. Uh, so did, did you just sort of, after a while, people said to you, hey, you really should do radio. And you said, okay, I found a way I'm going to use my voice somehow in my profession. Is that how you did it? What got you into, let me start with you. What got you into labor podcasting? Seriously. You know, it's funny you ask. I mean, first of all, thank you so much for the kind words and thank you for having us on the show. It's a real honor to be on here, especially with uh, Judy and Mel, uh, two fellow labor podcasters whose work I, I adore and appreciate, as well as the great work that you do here, Seth. So it's a real honor to be here. It's funny um, because, in fact, the, the getting into audio work um, was very much the opposite of what you described. But I remember asking uh, Flash Ferenz, uh, the host of America's uh, Workforce right. in um, Cleveland, who I listen to every morning, I asked him basically the same question when I interviewed him. I was like, were you born with those pipes? Like, did you just know from birth you were going to be a radio host? For me, it was a little more complicated, to be honest with you, Seth, because I started out as a writer, and I still consider myself first and foremost a writer, even though I never get time to write anymore, But I and I miss it. But that's where I got my start in this media world. I, I had a column for The Baffler. I was writing for places like The Nation and In These Times. Uh, the podcasting came later. Uh, it was almost a, an outgrowth of two things, and I'll, I'll be succinct here. But the first was my growing dissatisfaction with the sort of media politics that were happening around 2016, 2017, where it felt like initially I could make a difference in a, a heated moment of intense political debate 
a moment when progressive and independent media outlets like Jacobin, like In These Times, like The Baffler, uh, The Time Current Affairs, right? There was an explosion in independent media as well as podcasts. And I felt like there was a really rich debate going on about what do we do about Donald Trump, his supporters, where do we, where does the left go from here, what's happening with the labor movement. And I, I was participating in that as a writer, but I was growing uh, increasingly uncomfortable with the fact that a lot of folks in that realm were talking about workers, but very few were talking to workers. And uh, I, I wanted to help be part of uh, correcting that imbalance. And so that's why I really focused on the, the topic for working people, where I've been interviewing workers about their lives, their jobs, their dreams, and their struggles for many years now. But the other outgrowth was, uh, of course, as, as folks who know me and know the history of the show will know, uh, is that my family lost everything in the Great Recession. Um, and uh, we even lost the house that I grew up in uh, around 2014. The podcast came a few years later than that because my family was falling apart. Um, and we weren't talking to each other, especially my dad, Jesus Alvarez, uh, who felt like he had had and lost this infinite thing of the American dream that he could never get back. And, and he was punishing himself mercilessly for that. It was putting my parents' marriage on the rocks, our family on the rocks. And so I joke with people that I started my show Working People almost as a ruse to get my dad to talk about this stuff. Um, and, and we ended up having what is still my favorite conversation that I've ever recorded on the podcast. It's the very first one, my, the interview with my dad. But I'll be honest with you, Steph, this is the last thing I'll say and then I'll shut up. Um, it, it was difficult getting accustomed to hearing the sound of my own voice. I know we all feel that way. It's, I think it's a natural thing. But there was also a lot of sort of like um, hangups with my you know, racial identity that was tied up in that, right? Because I grew up uh, being told by my Mexican friends that I wasn't Mexican enough, being told by my white friends that I wasn't white enough, um, and, and feeling like my voice did not match the face that I saw when I looked in the mirror. Uh, and I, I was always worried about, quote unquote, sounding white. Um, with my education, with the fact that I wasn't a proficient Spanish speaker and that I, that I had this baritone, um, that, that, that was very uncomfortable for me, but I'm, I'm glad that over years I've gotten accustomed to it. I've gotten comfortable with it. And I'm so glad to hear that other folks enjoy hearing the sound of my own voice more than I do. Uh, but no, it wasn't something I started out thinking this is what I got to do. <laughs> Great. So Mel, I think you told me that your podcasting career goes back to your days in college. So I want you to tell us a little bit about what got you into it, certainly as a college student, and what kept you in it professionally. And I'd also like you to talk a little bit about who is your audience and what are you trying to accomplish? Sure. Yeah. So um, when I was 26, I applied to grad school and got into the University of Nebraska at Omaha. Um to start uh, a master's degree in literature. Um, and during the time, a couple of friends that I had organized with that were members of the IWW that had done a bunch of, you know, local Omaha organizing decided that they wanted to start a podcast. Um, and that was not on my radar at all, you know? Um, but I got invited on to do a couple of episodes and, <clears throat> um, we talked about various topics. It was really kind of fun, not something that I had ever done before. And one of my friends who was hosting that podcast, he'd been doing it for about a year. He was like, you actually kind of have a good voice for radio if you thought about doing this more often. Um, and I was like, you know, I haven't. 
but you never know. Maybe something will come up. It turns out two months later, uh, I connected with someone on Twitter who his name's Pearson Bolt, who runs a podcast called Coffee with Comrades, and he was looking for a co-host. And uh, my name had been thrown at him, and we talked and connected, and we started podcasting together and co-hosting the show together about politics and and progressive theory and anarchist theory. Um, and it was something that really kind of dovetailed really nicely with what I was studying in grad school. Um, and it was a really fun experience. And I, you know, Max, that's how Max and I ended up connecting before we started working together is that we, we did some podcasts together, working people connected with Coffee with Comrades. And then the, the podcast that I did with Protean Magazine, which is a, a nonprofit, uh, left-oriented art and culture magazine. Um, and, uh, yeah, that's, it's been, it's been a really good working relationship for the last couple of years. And now we're working together at the real news. Um, what I'm doing now, uh, with the real news network podcast and what I'm hoping to continue to do as we move forward into 2024 is to, uh, really seek out, um, not just an audience of, um, organizers, but individuals who just maybe are curious about the labor movement, about progressive politics, about the progressive response to climate change or the various other things that we, the movements and organizations that we cover. Um, we really try to create this space where we can kind of open up a toolbox for folks to be able to understand not only how can they apply this in their communities, but to, to bring the experts out of these communities, these organizers, these movement um, activists, um, and have them share what they are themselves experts in. Right. Um, and the, uh, additionally, this season, I'm really hoping to also include a lot of context and labor history to the podcast that, um, will help folks who are maybe getting started in the labor movement, or maybe have been in it for a while to, to help, you know, remind us that we are part of a much longer and larger legacy of, of, um, you know, labor movement activism in the United States. That is an incredible sort of tapestry of, of what we, we have accomplished, what we can accomplish and, and what's possible in the future. So. Yeah, that's terrific. So Judy, uh, so you've been doing this for a while. I'm not going to say how long I'll let you say it if you want to. And you're, uh, you're, primarily a radio broadcaster. The podcasting is essentially an ancillary part of, of what you do, although I think very popular and makes it possible for people like me who are not in the Kansas City area to hear what you do. Um, but, but in listening to your show, it sounds like a big part of your mission is giving voice to the local labor community. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think very, very effectively. In fact, on the show that I listened to, you spoke less than almost everybody else. So tell us a little bit first about how you got started, but also about what you're trying to accomplish with that local uh, labor community in Kansas City. Okay, well, thanks a lot, Beth. And, and hi, Mel and Max. It's a real honor to be on with all of you. Um, we began our show actually 35 years ago. We're going on 35 years on April Fantastic. Fool's Day, uh, 1989. We broadcast our first show, which was on the Eastern Airlines strike. Ancient history by now. Wow. But, uh, yeah, and uh, I remember that some uh, the union leader of the machinists at the Kansas City um, TWA maintenance base 
got arrested while we were taping uh, for um, trespassing at the airport during that strike. It was very exciting. Um, another little tidbit about when we started was that uh, we were still using reel-to-reel tape recorders. And I imagine all three of you can appreciate new technology uh, because reel-to-reel is such a difficult thing to edit because you have to use a razor blade and you have to use scotch tape. And uh, we did our second show was um, an interview with a delegation from Solidarity in Poland who had, you know, they had just thrown out the Russians and um, they were celebrating and they came to visit our Ford plant in Kansas City. And I remember the guy came over to the union hall where we were sitting in wait with our microphones and tape recorders. And um, he said, I feel like Alice in Wonderland. He was absolutely bowled over by all the technology that he saw in in our plant there. And I thought, oh, my God, are you in for it? But anyway, um, we recorded that thing with an interpreter, you know, like not simultaneously uh, translating, but, you know, English, Polish, English, Polish. But we only had a half hour show at the time. And so there we sat uh, for eight hours after that show with the razor blade, cutting out all the Polish so we could get more of the translation in. Um, Those were the days right now. It's like so easy to edit. But our show started uh, a year after our community radio actually went on the air, a community radio station, KKFI, in Kansas City, which had been the result of other kind of really crazy things like a, a committee of people who wanted, who hated what was on the airwaves and they wanted an alternative and they formed a committee in 1977, but didn't get the station on the air until 1988. And through all that time, they were dealing with the FCC to get a license, uh, which they eventually got for a hundred thousand watt radio station which is unheard of for a community radio station. Um, you know, I, I don't think you ever picked us up in Omaha, Mel, but we got halfway there anyway uh, with our tower. Perfect. And, yeah, right. But um, the way we raised the money in order to get on the air was by doing bingo games. This is before the era of casinos, and we would all go out and, um, you know, I, I do the pool tabs and, and uh, uh, be in smoke filled rooms for hours while people played bingo. And then we would raise a whole bunch of money. And we finally got enough to build our tower. Um, and the IBEW wired the station. And so they offered the IBEW a show. And the president of the Labor Council at the time was a member of the IBW, Local 124. And I had just been hired as a labor educator uh, at the University of Missouri, Kansas City. And he thought, oh, we're going to get her to do it. So he invites me out to lunch and proposes that I become a radio broadcaster. I said, I don't know anything about radio. I'm a teacher. And he said, yeah, well, we don't either. And But I'll find you folks. We got a guy named Jim Bean. I know we always laughed at that. Uh, we got a uh, Ford worker. We got um, an AFGE, social security worker. 
And, you know, we sort of had this, and we had a steel worker who was also a singer of labor songs. And we just put it all together and um, started the show. And you and still you still operate with a lot of volunteers helping you, right? We're all volunteers. Yeah. So we have, right currently we have about 10 volunteers. I'm the only original left. Um, everybody else has gone on to uh, do other things. Some started other shows, actually. And, um, yeah, we have our volunteers. They're just a treasure. It's the best volunteer experience I've ever had because they know the show must go on and they always come through unless they're dying or something. And and so we put together the schedule. Uh, it's very varied because of the different interests of the volunteers. Um, and so um, we continue to produce. We meet every two weeks in order to, every two months, I'm sorry, in order to figure out what our schedule is going to be, which means we can't react real well to what's going on right now. And we divide it up um, because there's no way we could have been on the air for 35 years with just one person doing it. I think we're an hour show once a week. And so, and we get, we get the benefit of these people's contacts and interests and, and styles. Yeah. Uh, and so, yeah, you may not have heard me on one show, but you'll hear me on another show. I, I <laughs> yeah. do the executive producing, so I'm always there, you know, introducing the show, but I'm not always there doing it. Give a big well, shout so out to Judy for holding it down, though, baby. Judy, you rock. <laughs> that's incredible. It's inc- over over all these years. That is real stick to itiveness. I got to say, that's terrific. Yeah, Working I don't know. Maybe I'm just dumb, but <laughs> no, 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 no. It's still no. fun. Stubborn. How about stubborn? Yeah, this week's show. This week's show, we're we're asking is Trump a fascist? No. <laughs> so that should be juicy. That's going to be a short. That's going to be a short show, I think. Okay, so <laughs> I want to turn. I want to turn to a question that Judy suggested for us. And, and Judy, I want. I'm going to. I'm going to turn this over to you. I'm just going to remind you what the question was that you wanted us to talk about. So you were you were uh, opining, I think accurately, that. The situation between employers and unions seems to be heating up. Uh, And uh, a lot of people see employers as increasing their law-breaking as workers increase their organizing. So do you think that we are seeing an increase in employer law-breaking under the National Labor Relations Act or under other laws as well? And or... Is it just that large employers, some large employers, I don't want to paint everybody with the same brush, but some large employers have basically said they don't they don't have to obey labor law. They're going to do what they want. There are no real effective penalties. Are we basically back in the pre-Wagner Act era, the pre-NLRA era, the era of the teens and the 20s and the 20th century, where essentially employers do what they like. Judy, let me, that was your question. Mm-hmm. I'm reading it back to you. Let me let you start it out. Okay. Well, I started, I realized this, I think, that something was going on here with um, a real increase in um, employers violating labor law. Uh, I mean, first off, employers have always violated labor law, right? And, you know, our labor laws suck. We have the worst labor laws in the developed world. And so it's an invitation to break the law because we have never had a real reform of 
the, uh, the only reform we've ever gotten of the Wagner Act, which was passed in 1935, was, of course, Taft-Hartley, which made it worse. And we've had nothing significant ever since, despite, you know, trying decade after decade to reform our labor laws. Um, they're an invitation to lawbreakers. And, uh, and, and the only thing I'll say is Howard Schultz. Uh, because, you know, I, 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 I yeah, but, yeah I, when I heard Howard Schultz uh, in, interrogated by Bernie Sanders in that Senate hearing last summer, I think it was, you know, I said, oh, this guy, this guy is doing something that's above and beyond what other garden variety labor law violators are doing. And I think he's the leader of the pack. I think Elon Musk is a one, you know, a, a devotee as well. Um, what we're seeing is a simply colossal refusal to respect any aspect of the law, and the willingness to spend probably millions of dollars on lawyers who are going to uh, try to destroy unions. So, yeah, I think there's a significant increase in um, certain kinds of employers, um, Musk may be an, uh, an exception, but the kinds of employers we're seeing who are basically firing workers, closing stores, uh, ref you know, refusing to abide by the basic rules of organizing. And then if they lose the organizing drive and they then have to go to the table, are absolutely refusing to negotiate. I recently read an article by Stephen Greenhouse, who I think you recently had on your show. It's a great interview. Uh, Thank you. About union busting that's going on. And he gave so many examples of what kinds of proposals these employers are are putting forward at the bargaining table, which show that they're absolutely not serious at all about reaching an agreement. They have no good faith whatsoever. And that's, of course, a violation of our labor law, which says that requires that both sides bargain in good faith. So, um, yeah, I think uh, they can get away with this because of the weakness of our labor laws. And I would add, I think they're getting away with it because the labor movement has not figured out a strategy to hold them to, uh, uh, to account for what they're doing. And I, I think that uh, what we really need to be discussing is how can we stop this? Because uh, we can't rely on the government to do it for us. All right, uh, now let me, let, me, let me turn it over to you and ask you the same question, but also maybe to pick up on Judy's point. Do you think we're seeing an increase in employer lawbreaking and what should we do? What, what should we do about it? Well, I do want to, I do want to add some, you know, um, just a thought I was having <clears throat> listening to you, Judy, is that, um, you know, the, the labor laws are very weak. The consequences for breaking the labor laws are very weak. It's kind of, you know, I think a lot about the idea that a parking ticket is only restrictive to the people who can't pay for it. Right. Um, traffic laws don't exist for folks who are rich enough to pay for the tickets that they get while breaking those laws. Right. Mm. Same idea here with these corporations who will spend, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars, in some cases, millions of dollars on these union busting campaigns. You know, the Real News Network, myself and Max have done significant work kind of tracking a lot of the 
the union busting uh, consultants who will get paid hand, money hand over fist to to try and stop union elections from moving forward or getting people to vote no. It's all the same idea, right? But if the consequences for breaking those laws are a drop in the bucket for a corporation that you know has billions of dollars in profits per year or however much money, right? Um, then it doesn't matter, right? So in some ways, I think. Uh, you know, they've also benefited heavily from uh, sort of toothless NLRB out of the Trump administration and a much better NLRB out of the Biden administration that still has, you know, budget shortfalls and all these problems that need to be addressed, right? So even the enforcement of these laws is difficult when you have so many cases that uh, require the time, but we just don't have the manpower, the resources aren't there, you know? Um, because in one sector or another, lobbyists have dumped money into the pockets of the people who signed the checks in the federal government and have, you know, stymied this process from top to bottom. So, you know, uh, I think that also sort of plays into this, this conversation. I also wonder if the, the, and this is maybe something that Max can speak to if you want to pick up on this, but I wonder if a lot of what we're seeing in terms of, uh, an uptick in, union busting or labor law breaking by these major corporations is also sort of come from the proliferation of uh, more public messaging around these campaigns, social media being a huge piece of this. A lot of these independent unions have really uh, taken on uh, digital campaigns that, you know, I don't remember seeing when I was younger in my, you know, when I moved into the, the workforce when I was 18, 19 and in, in the, in the, the teens. Right. So, you know, uh, the, there's a new strategies for messaging that also put this on people's radar a lot more often. So I wonder if a lot of this law breaking that we're seeing the biggest piece of crap is obviously Howard Schultz and the, 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 wholesale, just not even paying attention to the, what, hundreds of shops that have now organized under his corporate umbrella, right? Um, Over but, 300. Yeah, which is great. Still organizing, still winning union elections, still trying really hard to, to, I think that's great to see. I think a lot of that is also, we're seeing it on social media, people are talking about it. So we also get to see that these corporations that maybe enjoyed relative anonymity or, you know, got a chance to kind of sit uh, behind the curtain of the the process that wasn't really something that was part of the public consciousness, now are dealing with more spotlights, I guess. Uh, I don't know, Max, yeah. if you want to try and yeah. add something there. Yeah. Max, I mean, well, just, I mean, wholeheartedly <laughs> agree with, with what Judy and Mel were saying and uh, just wanted to also quote uh, my boy Adam Keller, who's co-host of the Valley Labor Report, another great show out of Alabama. It's actually Alabama's only union talk radio show. Everyone should check it out. Uh, but when Adam was on America's Workforce Radio with Flash uh, recently, he put it very succinctly. He said, we have, quote, we have a broken labor law regime in this country, which really incentivizes employers to do the wrong thing because they don't face the penalties for doing the wrong thing. I think that that's basically it in a nutshell. Right. And I mean, let's just call it what it is. Right. What we when we are talking about employers breaking labor law, they are criminals. We are talking about a corporate crime wave that is happening in broad daylight um, before our eyes for years on end. 
right? I mean, but to Mel's point, like perhaps the public scrutiny on this flagrant breaking of the law by employers, big corp, big and small, you know, like ha that has intensified in recent years. But as Judy rightly pointed out, I mean, employers, the, 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 the standard in this country is that employers are immune from labor law. I mean, like it's more, if anything, it's the exception than the rule when it comes to employers being held to the standard that is enshrined in our labor laws. On a day-to-day -day basis, anyone who's worked a low-wage job can tell you, your boss tells you to do illegal things every shift, right? I mean, even the terms of your employment are likely a violation of labor law. But because 90% of workers in this country are not part of a union, and even many workers within their existing unions do not have strong democratic unions that accurate that, that that represent them well and fight for them on that front um so the vast vast majority of us are effectively on our own we don't have the power or the resources or the know-how to really hold our uh, employers accountable and we are disincentivized from doing that ourselves right because it is a long drawn out process. Uh, if you are filing an unfair labor practice charge with the NLRB, as many, many, many of the workers that I've interviewed, that Mel's interviewed, that Judy's interviewed have, you you may end up waiting, you know, a year, two years in that time. The mm -hmm. bosses, the managers can turn the screws on you. They can mess with your schedule. They can harass you. They can dump uh, uh, really like uh, uh, arduous work on you. Like they can find so many ways to essentially punish you for trying to follow the law and trying to get them to follow the law and trying to exercise your rights in the workplace. These are rights. These are rights that we have as workers in the workplace, but we are penalized and, and, and beaten and battered and fired and even at the point of losing our livelihoods for exercising those rights. That's how ridiculous the point that Judy made is about how bad our labor laws in this country actually are. When we talk to folks outside of the U.S., they always ask the same question. They're like, how does anyone get a union in that country? And it's like, well, a lot of people don't. That's the point. And I just want to like um, uh, add some, some kind of numerical meat to that real quick, right? Because uh, uh, in terms of like the, the uptick that we're seeing, and we are in fact seeing an uptick, right? Because in 2023, the um, National Labor Relations Board did see a 10% increase in unfair labor practice charges from 2022. That went up from around 17,988 to uh, 19,854 in the past year. Um, but in the previous year, there was a 19% increase. And in fact, the previous year from 21 to 22, that was when we saw the largest jump in new union election filings to the NLRB. It was a 50% jump from the previous year. And over the past year, we have seen still an increase, but a much lower increase, about a 3% increase in 2023 compared to 2022 in new union election filings. And I think that there's just, there are two points that I want to make there. One, Mel already suggested, I, I do think that there is an effect here that it's not that um, uh, bosses are breaking the law more um, necessarily, uh, or, or it's that more people are um, educated on their rights. Um, there is a growing sort of culture, right, in which people feel, I think, a little more emboldened than they have in the past to try to exercise that right and to file ULPs with the NLRB and hope to get some accountability. I've looked at this in other realms, right? I've done a lot of um, 
uh, uh, reporting with workers who have suffered uh, workplace bullying, um, people who have been harassed, and uh, including non-union workers, right? And there, there is a similar trend in terms of filings to OSHA and other agencies pertaining to workplace bullying and harassment going up over the years. But with that, it's, again, not that, that people weren't being harassed or bullied before, but just an increase in consciousness in people's, uh, in people's consciousness about the law and so on and so forth. So I do think that is playing a role, but I also really want to underline for people that this is a moment that's not going to come around again. There is something temporary about what we have been seeing, not only because of the sort of radical dynamics, uh, the social dynamics that were, were uh, kind of uh, catalyzed by COVID-19. Um, you know, we, we don't have to go into all that. We've all talked about it on our shows. I published a book of interviews with workers during COVID right there. A lot of reasons why I think COVID pushed so many workers, old and young, right, to say enough is enough, right? I mean, we were really shown during COVID-19 how little uh, the bosses and even our own government think of us and our lives, right? And so a lot of people stopped and asked themselves, why am I going to break my back? Why am I going to risk my life, my health, and so on and so forth for people who don't care if I die today or tomorrow, right? So I do right. think that that has played right. a significant role. But what I also want to highlight for people is that we've been in a tight labor market, the likes of which we will not see for, for generations, right? The boomers are aging out of the labor market. This is the largest generation before COVID, right? The, the, the largest um, sector for employment, the, the, the sector that was seeing the largest growth in employment was like home healthcare workers. And, and, and so like, there, there is, you know, these are like critical changes that are happening to the economy at a point when AI, new technologies are threatening to automate more traditional jobs and so on and so forth. Uh, at the same time that people are being inspired by this, this uh, uh, labor upswing. But at the same time, last year, some, the majority of the big strikes just happened to be by unions that were led by uh, um, that that had direct democratic elections. We're going right? to talk so, about that. Ne we're going to talk about right. that next. So so can I just jump in this is the convergence of of things that are are fleeting, are temporary, and we need to take advantage of that moment. Sorry, Judy, go for it. Go ahead, no, Judy. that's okay. That's that's great because uh, I just want to pick up on a couple of points first. Uh, and you, you talked about how, uh, you know, like employers are used to getting away with things because there's no enforcement, but it's not just in labor. I mean, when you look at the lack of enforcement of our laws against big business in this country, it's pretty much across the board. It's environmental, it's tax, it, it you know, it's, it's antitrust. It's so many things that big business gets away with in this country, which worsens the lives of working people in many, many different ways by, you know, by poisoning us, by making us pay way more than our fair share of taxes, et cetera, et cetera. And so, you know, like it has to do with the whole, I mean, the power of the wealthy, the power of the rich, the power of corporations in this country. It's, it, it's no accident that labor also. But I wanted to make other, one other point first before we go on, which is that if you look historically at what makes workers organize and what gives workers the confidence to actually take the risk of organizing, what you find is that success breeds success. 
In other words, if the people in the next town have successfully organized a union, we're going to have a little more guts to go up and take the risks against our own employers. And that's why what you say, Max, is so important that there's a momentum here that's building and it can go away. And we need to strike while the iron is hot. That's why I feel that it's so important for us to find some kind of solution to this employer scofflaw business right now. Because if Starbucks succeeds or Trader Joe's succeeds or, you know, Tesla, if they ever get that to that point, succeed in prolonging negotiations to the point where workers are just so demoralized that they give up then the whole shebang is going to just sort of disintegrate. And so it's super important that labor sees this as a moment to act and figures out a strategy to do something. So I want to, I want to jump in. I want to just make three very quick points and then we'll get on to our third and final topic. Mm -hmm. But um, uh, about the question of whether or not we're seeing an increase in employer lawbreaking, we have to keep in mind that a lot of the most hateful, despicable stuff that employers do in union organizing drives is legal. Right? So you can you can lock a worker in a room and harangue them with anti-union propaganda for as long as you want, and that does not violate labor laws, right? And even if you do violate labor law by illegally firing somebody, it can be a year, year and a half, even longer before that person has any hope of getting their job back and getting back wages. And most working people in America, the overwhelming majority of working people in America cannot take that kind of a risk. So you only have to, if you're an employer, you only have to do it once. You only have to maybe do it twice. The second thing is, and I, I want to pick up on Mel's point here. I think this is extremely important. I'm not sure there's been an increase in law breaking. I think there's a lot of sunlight on the law breaking. We are seeing it in real time. We're seeing videos of Starbucks, work, Starbucks Workers United sitting, waiting for the Starbucks representatives to sit down at the bargaining table and they're not showing up. We're seeing the testimony of workers who've been fired because they were involved in an organizing drive. I think it's just being disclosed more than it's been before. And that's, I think, a very, very important point that, that we want to keep in mind. And I think this is where Judy was getting. One of the things that we've learned over the last two years is that the law is extremely limited. I think it actually works in a sizable number of cases. We just don't ever hear about them because they don't end up being big conflicts. But really, law is limited, and that's where power picks up. Mm -hmm. The unions that have immense power, either because they represent workers that have are in occupations that have barriers to entry, so it's very, very hard to replace those workers. You know, you can't just walk in off the street and write a television script, for example. That's why the Writers Guild has a lot of power. You can't just walk into a plant and build a car, right? That's dangerous, and you wouldn't know how to do it. Also, there's 150,000 auto workers. There's 330,000 teamsters. You couldn't possibly replace all of those people all at once. So those unions have a lot of power. But for the workers who need unions most, I think every worker needs a union. But for those who are most vulnerable, most at risk, farm workers, uh, uh, retail workers, 
workers in the fast food industry, workers in packing houses, workers in other low-wage industries, because those workers do not bring enough power to the table, their employers are able to break weak labor laws. There are no remedies under the law for those violations, and the employers get away with it. The employers get away with it because the unions don't have enough power. The workers do not have enough power to impose costs on those employers. That's one of the reasons why organizing, widespread organizing, is so critically important. Building union density in as many industries as possible, that is the path. Because labor law reform is stuck, it has been tried and tried and tried, as long as the Republicans and conservative Democrats have 41 votes in the United States Senate, we're not going to get it. And so the question becomes, how can workers build the power that they need in order to remedy this problem so that the law becomes much, much less important? That's my my take on it. Lee, I want to get to this last issue, very important one, and Max started us out down this path, and I want to I, I want to uh, uh, continue down this path uh, with him. So I'm going to give him a chance to start us off. So we we saw big, big, big strikes in 2023, and a near strike at the biggest private sector uh, bargaining unit in the country, the Teamsters at uh, UPS. And in a couple of those cases, particularly the UAW but also the Teamsters, you had new union leadership. I would argue that SAG-AFTRA, Fran Drescher, also was pretty new. She had been reelected during the course of the strike, but she had only been in office for two years. So let's call her a new leader as well. And in the UAW, it was the Sean Fain is the first president of the UAW to be directly elected by the members rather than by delegates to a convention. And there's a reform movement going on in the labor movement. So is there a connection between the labor movement reforming itself and the epic, historic, generational strike activity and activism that we saw in 2023 and also I would say go back to 2022? And if that's true, is... Are, are we helping workers with reform in the labor movement or are we distracting them from the real fight? That's the big question that I want to get to. Max, why don't you start us off? So I think, I mean, these, these are great questions and I know we don't, we don't have too much time, so I'll try to um, uh, condense, <laughs> condense my answer. Um, you know, but, but yes, I mean, the answer is yes, we, we have a role to play here. And I'm glad that you phrased it that way, Seth, because that's one thing I wanted to add to the previous, our discussion in the previous question as well, right? Is that we all have a role to play here, right? It's not just the workers who work at a given employer, right, whose struggle this is. This is all of our struggle. If we want working people in this country and beyond to actually have more of a say in the world that we make happen with our labor, because right now the people above our heads are making all the decisions and the world is going to hell, right? And so I think we need more democracy in general to save this burning planet. And unions need more democracy as well, because the entire principle uh, upon which the labor movement is based is translating uh, 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 the essence of democracy into the workplace, right? And so if unions are supposed to be 
these democratic engines of worker empowerment uh, on the job, in the workplace, then unions themselves should be democratically run, or at least more democratically run than a lot of them are right now. And I think that we all have a, a role to play in that, and it is not a distraction. Democracy is never a distraction. Democracy is important and necessary for this movement and other movements to survive, right? Otherwise, you can create, you know, a top-down authoritarian type movement, but how far is that going to get you? How loyal are people going to be? How hard are they going to fight for you if they don't feel like they have a say in where that movement actually goes? And I think that why we saw so many high-stakes uh, contract fights and wins last year was because, as I mentioned earlier, there was a unique uh, uh, quality to the strikes we saw last year in the fact that um, the, the majority of those unions that went on strike have democratic elections of their top union leadership. That is not the case for the majority of unions in this country. In fact, as Chris, bon uh, Chris Boehner wrote uh, succinctly in Labor Notes, quote, of the top 20 unions representing approximately 13.3 million members and 83% of all U.S. union workers, only six have direct elections. Only 20% of all union members, or 2.7 million, have the right to directly elect their top officers. In contrast, 80% of members, or 10.6 million workers, have no such right. right? And so what we saw... To your point, Seth, last uh, uh, year, which was so exciting and inspiring for people, is the result of more democratic union, uh, uh, more democratic unions, right? I mean, the the, the teamster and and those did not come out of good circumstances. The Teamsters only have Democratic unions because of Hoffa and all the corruption, and they were put under a federal consent decree back in 89. And so the only reason the government didn't take over their union was because they came to an agreement to say, we're going to have direct election over our union leadership so that democracy can be the antidote to corruption. And then, you know, 30 years later, Sean O'Brien is elected by the membership, leads a, a, a historic contract campaign that leads to, you know, uh, a major gains in UPS Teamsters contract, avoiding a strike in August. Same thing with Sean Fain. The UAW uh, is also, you know, got one member, one vote, both because its previous president and a bunch of other administrators, including former presidents, you know, were, were sent to jail for corruption um, and were also put under federal consent decree. The union membership had a moment uh, a chance to vote on a referendum that would give the union direct democratic leadership. We covered it here at the Real News. I interviewed workers about it two years ago. They they narrowly got it. Then they narrowly or they they won it overwhelmingly. Then they narrowly uh, elected Sean Fain and his reform slate uh, in the the next year. And then Sean Fain and the, this reform slate with the, the membership whips up the kind of energy to build a credible strike threat to build a sort of more democratic fervor within a union that. Did not have it, um, you know, until recently, right? I remember in the first season of my podcast, Working People, I was interviewing GM workers on strike in 2019. They did not talk about their union, the UAW, the way that workers are talking about the UAW now. They didn't even know what they were going on strike for half the time. They didn't know what the directions were. They didn't know how long they were going to be out. They didn't know what progress was being made at the bargaining table. It was a, a very, very different union just five short years ago. Um, but this is what, you know, more bottom up energy can do for a movement. And I think that that is really crucial. And there are 
you know, like like I said, other you know major unions like the Steelworkers, SAG after the Writers Union, right, that have direct democratic elections for their union leadership, but many many do not. And so I think that um, you know there are a lot of unions that need. Uh, more of this democratic energy. They need to hear more from the rank and file and be held accountable by the rank and file because we are at risk of running out of that momentum that Judy mentioned. If we have folks going into massive sectors like uh, uh, food and service work and like maybe they're they're becoming part of a UFCW local and they're hating their experience. They've never met their union rep. All they know is that dues are coming out of their paycheck and they're not they don't know what they're even getting for it right so there's a lot of work to do here sorry i'll shut up no no, you don't have to shut up but we do have to get over to mel mel let me give you a chance to get in on this now and i want to be careful because you know if you pose the question as are you for democracy or against democracy eh, it's kind of not a very fair question you know nobody's going to come out nobody in this conversation is going to come out and say i'm against democracy is a horrible thing but we're seeing rising activism among workers, I think that activism is is uh, is rising up, not just in the unions that have direct elections, but in other unions as well. The question is whether or not that activism or militancy might be a better word gets translated if you don't have the kind of reforms that Max is advocating for. What do you think? Well, I would. Um, I think there's kind of a, uh, a needle that probably needs to be threaded a little bit in terms of uh, how you can translate militant sort of sentiment or um, energy into, uh, you know, material gains for workers. Right? I think there is definitely space for that in unions that do not have the current democratic model that the UAW and, and Teamsters have. There's also, as Judy has mentioned, success breeds success, right? Um, and there are uh, new sort of reform movements that are beginning to uh, coalesce and start in other large unions. For example, the crew reform movement in IATSE, which is getting off the ground, um, you know, and various other spaces where you can have what I think is, I think and maybe this is kind of a cheap way to, to explain this, but I think the, the sort of uh, explosion in and interest in union organizing among younger generations, so younger millennials, Gen Z, Gen Alpha now, um, has also kind of come with uh, a far more militant sort of sensibility in terms of how they view politics and the political machine in this country, how these young activists can feel um, energized to, to, to take action in certain ways. Inside unions, it seems to me like a lot of these reform movements are being led by younger generations of workers who have, you know, um, uh, begun paying their dues in these major unions to take, for example, all of the UAWD organizers that I've met are 35 years or younger. I know that there are older individuals that have, mm-hmm. you know, sat in the slates and are, are doing all this great stuff. But the, the ones who have, who I have met who have managed to, um, you know, be elected to these staff positions to be able to do work in, in places like region nine and other, other places they're in their thirties. Right. So, you know, and they're, they're young folks, right. So it's a new idea about what unions can do. Um, and I think that militancy uh, translates itself really well into these, defi- you know, reform democracy movements, but it also means that you have, Strike captains that are that are you know uh, 
unable to be fatigued, right? Who are good at keeping workers on the line, right? You have individuals who are joining, who are younger, um, still militant, who are joining negotiating committees and who are uh, playing a larger role in contract campaigns, who are doing a lot internally to help organize each other, who are doing a lot externally to help bring people into the fold. Having that militancy means that if you are able to keep that energy up, that you see that there is still something that is useful, that is beneficial, that unions can give you in the workplace, um, and you're willing and able to spend that extra time, that extra energy to learn more about how you can, um, you know, uh, approach your organizing as a worker organizer, um, and it takes that militant form, I think that's fantastic. And I think that that is, you know, uh, also these various uh, ways in which that that energy can can be disseminated, and oftentimes, as in the case with uh, crew, is that a lot of those those you know IATSE workers, to my understanding, based on labor notes, is great reporting. Is that you know these folks are your young folks who were activated during the 2021 campaign contract campaign and walked away from that strike authorization and that tentative agreement. Uh, sort of backroom deal, as a lot of them say, uh, extremely disappointed, right? They did what they were asked to do. They organized incredibly well uh, amongst themselves to to really make sure folks showed up for the, the strike authorization vote, that they were willing and able to pick up a picket sign, that they were ready to go. And they were not satisfied with the contract that came out of it. And unfortunately, they were in the minority when the contract was ratified. So a lot of these folks are like, okay, what can we do next? That's going to make sure that we don't have to do this year after year after year. Every time a, a contract cycle comes forward, we we're tired. We don't want to do this anymore, you know? Uh, uh, and so they say, okay, well, what about a reform movement? And, and so you see that, that folks will find ways that their energy kind of just moves into these directions where no matter which direction you take in terms of, of your participation, uh, for your fellow rank and file members, right? It's generally beneficial and it's going to help create the unions that will lead us into the future past AI, past automation, past all of these, these, um, you know, uh, threats to our workforce uh, and give us the space to be able to, to actually do something that has a material benefit to a large amount of people. Okay. Judy, um, the connection between democratic reform and activism, effectiveness on the picket line, the ability to win a contract, a really great contract. That was one of the notable things about 2023 is best contracts we've had in a generation, not just at the UAW, not just at the Teamsters, but across the board, record wage increases. And and some folks are attributing that to the reform movement and the activism that it was built off of. What do you think? Well, you know, I thought that too, until I talked to a local, our, our local G, uh, president of GM in Kansas City, and I said, so do you think that the reform movement really made a difference, having one man, one vote? He said, I'd like to think that, but then I looked at the turnout, and the turnout in the election for president in the UAW was abysmal. And, and so clearly there's a lot more to it than simply being able to directly elect your, your union president. You know, I was a member of the Steelworkers back in the late 70s and 80s, and we had direct election of our president, and the union was super dictatorial. Uh, you know, we, it was very top-down, at least where I was. 
And uh, as I remember, there were some stolen elections and, and corruption, etc. So, yeah, it's a great reform, and I think it's absolutely essential, but it's certainly insufficient for creating a democratic culture. We don't have a democratic culture in this nation. How many people actually participate in politics? How many people vote? It's a minority. And, and so, you know, the culture in general does not encourage democracy. And in fact, you know, many people are saying we're losing democracy with a real increase in the, num in the number of people who, actually, who don't think that democracy is, is serving their interests. So, you know, like we need a culture change overall to get more people to actually take responsibility for uh, being involved in, in uh, democratic decision-making and uh, activism, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, like, I, I think that, yes, it's very important, but it certainly isn't sufficient. I'm thrilled to see a democratic movement developing in the UFCW. It's long overdue. I hope it succeeds. I know that uh, having more union members take an interest in their union and becoming involved is an absolute essential for winning good contracts. There's, there's no question about that. I think the question is, you know, how do we do it? Who is actually getting on the bully pulpit and calling for that within our unions? What I see, you know, even in so-called democratic unions is still, I mean, our local Teamsters here in Kansas City, you have militant rank and filers who want to fight and the leadership doesn't like that. The leadership fired, gets them fired. So there's so much more that we need to do in, in order to support the idea of democratic values in our unions. We need our unions themselves, the top leadership, the AFL-CIO, to take a stand for it instead of simply grudgingly accepting it when some court orders a union to reform. Why aren't our unions from the top taking a stand for democracy? Why aren't our unions from the top saying, everybody go boycott Starbucks or everybody show up for surrounding Starbucks and saying, this is unacceptable. Why aren't they doing that? You know, why is it up to rank and filers and, and, and allies and jobs with justice and, uh, you know, those groups to win what the top labor leadership ought to be calling for. Yeah. Thanks, Judy. And let me just say, I learned something very, very important from this broadcast, and that is if you bring a, together a group of people who talk for a living, you're going to get a lot of talk. It's <laughs> way longer than I thought we were going to go, but it was worth every second. It was worth every second. All right. Mel, so tell everybody where they can find you. I'm not going to say, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to talk. I'm going to give Mel a chance to tell everybody where they can find her. Mel, where do they find you? Well, uh, I am hosting the Real News Network podcast. You can find episodes at therealnews.com. You can also check us out on Spotify, YouTube, or on most major platforms. If you want to send me a message or yell at me about anything that I said in this podcast, you can find me on most social media. Just look for Mel Buer, that's B-U-E-R. Or you can email me at mel at therealnews.com. Thanks, Mel. Judy, where can everybody find you? 
Well, we post all of our shows. We You can subscribe to the podcast on, I think, just about, you know, any phone you have. Um, you go to heartlandlaborforum.org or go to kkfi.org and look for Heartland Labor Forum. Max, where can everybody find you? So folks can uh, find my stuff, uh, Working People, my podcast, uh, which is syndicated with the Real News Network. And in these times, you can find them there. You can find it wherever your fine podcasts are sold. Uh, you can also um, find the Real News Network on YouTube, on our podcast feed, on our website. Please go to therealnews.com forward slash donate because we need folks like you to support our work so we can stay independent and stay on these important stories. So please, please, please donate now. Uh, you can also find my guest segment, The Art of Class War, on the Breaking Points channel, which I do every couple weeks. Uh, you could also find my book, The Work of Living, at Or Books. Try not to buy it from Amazon if you can. Uh, in like last 15 seconds, I just want to throw in like three quick points. One, uh, while we've been talking about what's coming up, I want to impress upon people that we cannot forget about the people we've left behind, right? We cannot forget about the fact that 90% of workers in this country do not belong to a union. So organize, organize, organize the unorganized. Organized. We have so much work to do. It's not just about the unions that are taking strikes now. Also, please do not forget about the smaller unions that have been on strike and have not won the contract gains that the UAW and the Teamsters did last year, especially unions or, or work, groups of workers with multiple unions like the folks at the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette who have been on strike since October of last year. Their employer at the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette refuses to abide by labor law, refuses to bargain in good faith, and keeps just waiting out the unions and hoping that everyone quits and leaves their jobs. So we need to be there just like we need to be there for the Starbucks workers who knew union election filings have, have nosedived over the past six months because new stores are seeing how much union busting the previous stores are facing and that they haven't got a contract yet. Same thing's happening with Amazon labor union. So if you guys are listening to this and you want to see that movement grow, you actually have a role to play. You cannot forget about the workers who haven't won that contract yet, who haven't won that strike yet. So you got to stay on top of that. You got to let those companies know you have not forgotten about these struggles. So thank you so much for having us on, man. Really appreciate it. Max Alvarez, Judy Ansel, Mel Buer, thank you for being here. Enjoyed the conversation. We'll see you again really soon. Thanks. Thank you, Thank sir. you. Thanks. You can stay up to date with the latest news about workers, worker power, and unions by subscribing to the Power at Work blog. You'll receive the weekly download, a Power at Work newsletter sent straight to your inbox. The weekly download collects about two dozen of the week's articles, academic studies, press releases, podcasts, and videos from across the internet. We'll find the stories and deliver them directly to you. So subscribe to the weekly download right now on the front page of the Power at Work blog. Go to poweratwork.us. Thanks so much for hanging around and watching the whole blogcast with our labor podcaster friends. We hope you enjoyed it. And uh, let me say you can find more of our blogcasts and podcasts on the blog at powerwork.us or on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or whatever commercial provider you use. You can connect with the Power at Work blog team in a lot of different ways on social media. We have pages on LinkedIn and Facebook. Just search Power at Work blog. You can find us at Power at Work blog on Twitter X and threads. You can find us at Power at Work blog on Instagram. I'm sorry, at Power at Work 
at on Instagram and TikTok. You can find all our broadcasts on YouTube on the Burns Center for Social Change channel. Thanks again for joining us, and we hope you'll catch the next broadcast from the Power at Work blog. We'll see you back on the blog soon. The Power at Work blog invites you to join us on Tuesday, January 23rd at 8 p.m. ET for How Many Union Members in America? Experts analyze BLS's 2023 Union Members Survey. This subscribers-only webinar will feature Vonda McDaniel, the president of the Central Labor Council of Nashville and Middle Tennessee and AFL-CIO Executive Council member, and Heidi Shearholz, the president of the Economic Policy Institute. Visit www.poweratwork.us to register and learn more.